0: Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Callum Chain and Luke Zadkiewicz from Floyd Zadkiewicz. Welcome Callum.
1: Welcome Luke. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We're, we're back, to, back to just the two of us for the first time in season two. Oh
0: yes, yes. Um, back to how we used to do it. Exactly. I think I think we'll survive with this case, just the two of us.
1: I think we'll survive. (laughs) Until we have the next guest lined up.
0: Yeah, I I think we're gonna have another guest uh next week. So looking forward to that. One of
1: our our US colleagues, Eva Maria Meyer. And that's it, that's a good one. Next week's one. It's one it's a it's a it's a point of law that I think is absolutely fascinating between the US and, and England, but we'll park that for next week's excitement.
0: Yeah, well we've have, we've got a good one today. This this has got some twists and turns. I've got quite a bit to say on this case. The the decision we're talking about is a decision of the English High Court, the commercial court. The judgment was given by Sir Nigel Tier, sitting as a judge of the High Court, the claimant and owners in the underlying arbitration. Uh, were Space Shipping Limited. And the defendant on this appeal and charterers in the arbitration were ST Shipping and Transport. So as the the name suggests, this is an appeal coming from an arbitration. It's a recent decision. Decision was handed down on the 13th of August 2021. So Pretty much hot off the press and and let's get into into the facts in a moment, but this is one of those classic classic arbitrations and I think a really interesting one, Callum mean that there was a series of interim final awards that were given because the arbitration was commenced at a time when damages continued to accrue.
1: Yeah and you can totally see why when we get into the facts why the arbitration was started when it was and why the arbitrator dealt with it in the way that they did by giving these interim awards, just almost chipping away at the amount of damages that were owed on each occasion.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and one of the things that struck me and that I I know I always think about when I think about these cases is if I was handling it, what would I do or or why would I be bringing the claim that I am or defending it? Uh, What would be my strategy involved in this case? I think for this case, as as it is for most, if not all the cases that we talk about, the context is very important. And there there is context here, which we'll get into, I'm sure, but there's context about what was happening up and down the chain in other arbitrations. And uh, I dare say that may well have been affecting um, or impacting on some of the positions that were being taken in this particular arbitration, which is now before the, the court on, on a point of a, an appeal on a point
1: of law. Yeah, and maybe that's a good a good a good point to segue into the facts, which were a relatively routine charter party chain. We've got head owners at the top. They bareboat chartered the vessel to space shipping, who were the owners for the arbitration, as Luke said, who then time chartered to ST shipping on a short term charter party, which was for a number of months. I think it was eight months an eight month charter from memory. Yeah. And very shortly after delivery into that charter party, the vessel was detained in Venezuela. And it was detained from September 2014, ultimately until October 2017. So pretty enormous detention. And following following the release of the vessel, it was then towed to Trinidad, re-delivered to the head owners, and ultimately uh, scrapped. The There was a claim between... Space shipping and ST shipping, in which it was found that ST were responsible for the detention, and therefore there was a damages claim brought against them by space shipping for higher up to the expiry of the charter party period and thereafter higher at the market rate until uh, redelivery. And essentially, the question before the court here was whether or not ST shipping were entitled to reduce their exposure to space shipping in an amount equal to the dry docking. That space shipping did not perform that they ought to have performed or would have performed in that period had they had the vessel doing its normal its normal trade rather than being detained, which then throws up a number of other issues. But essentially, that's the question that the court had to answer—a a relatively constrained question on on the assessment of damages.
0: Yeah, and it was, yeah, it was all about whether the deduction that was made in favour of charterers. For the avoided dry dock expenditure should be a credit in charterers' favor or not. And I think it's it's interesting that the overall amount that was awarded in favor of owners against the charterers across these series of these awards was $24.4 million. And the dry docking costs that were avoided, uh, I think, came to $1.4 million. So in the grand scheme of things, you know, it it, it wasn't a a large amount by comparison to the overall award, but $1.4 million is $1.4 million. And there were twists and turns in the series of interim awards. There were multiple appeals um, over this issue and then eventually the final, final award, if I can call it that, came for appeal on this point. And that's what the subject of this decision is. But there were two occasions prior to this, I think it was the, the interim award one and the interim award two, or no, interim award four, that this issue of the, the dry docking expenditure had been dealt with, had been dealt with against owners and and being decided in charter's favor at least the first one was an indication of where that was going and I think the the fourth award was a definitive decision on that in charter's favor but right throughout the arbitrator um, and I, I couldn't see in the decision who was the arbitrator and I wasn't sure about that whether that's Common not to name the arbitrator in these decisions, but any of Yeah,
1: it seems like it's almost 50-50. Sometimes they get named. I wonder if they were named in one of the previous uh, cases.
0: Yeah, I wondered that too. In, in any event, we, we don't know who the arbitrator was, but was described as the most experienced maritime arbitrator. So no doubt one of the usual suspects. And the arbitrator was convinced throughout that uh, there should be um, credit given to the charterers for the dry docking expenditure. And the point that I, I really wanted to make here, and it goes to the context issue, is it really seems that the owners kept beating, perhaps not a dead horse, but you know, a horse on its last legs because the arbitrator seemed adamant of what should happen on this point. It's almost strays into questions of fact, and not just purely questions of law. It had been decided Previously by the arbitrator and then appealed with the court giving some indications what they thought on this point and yet came back up again for an appeal. And I I just wondered whether this was one of those scenarios where in an arbitration up the line, and ultimately the the owners, the head owners are pursuing the whole underwriters and insurers for the constructive total loss claim i just wondered whether this was a case of being seen to do everything you can to mitigate your position in this arbitration and that's why they were really pushing this or maybe it's just they wanted the 1.4 million
1: yeah I, I, <laughs> I, no i think i think you're right there's every chance and and as as is often the way when when you have a, an arbitration between two private parties then you don't often get the context that's going on around it and that then flows through to the to the to the court case between the two parties there was a point a procedural point that i thought was um, worth flagging here which is that as you say that this has been appealed a number of times and different partial final awards from the arbitrator had been appealed to the court a number of times without the need for permission and normally, that's, a, that's a, a pretty big bar to getting your arbitration award that you dislike before the court. It's, it's actually pretty rare that the court will accept. Permission to appeal the the test is is high and it requires either a it it, it requires e- e- either something which is obviously wrong from the tribunal or point of public importance which is open to uh, where where the award is open to serious doubt so you so you really need either something which which is very clearly wrong on on law or alternatively something where the the court can say okay what what you're asking us to do here is interpret a routinely used provision, and therefore there's benefit to the law at large in us hearing this topic. But even then, the arbitrator's decision has to be open to serious doubt. So that high threshold would normally exclude a party from being able just to constantly run these points. What was what was important in this context is that there was a clause in the charter party by which either party was entitled to appeal to the high court any question of law arising out of an award. And that means that you bypass the normal permission to appeal stage, and under section sixty nine a of the arbitration act, the parties can appeal with the agreement of all the other parties directly to the to the high court. And I think that's why we, we kind of saw such an industry of of the um, and so well of and the lawyers involved, I suppose, in dealing with these issues in arbitration and then with with real regularity, sending them up to the to the to the commercial court. And,
0: and do you think this is an example of where um, having that threshold uh, to get an appeal before a court from an arbitration award is a good thing? Or do you think it's, it's, it's positive to have you know, these types of rights of appeal written into contracts so that you have them as of an agreed right without the need for permission and getting over that initial threshold? You know, one view is well, the, the series of of appeals to the court, particularly on points that seem to have been almost overlapping, is just a duplication of costs and just adds more burdens and weight to the whole the whole process. the The flip side, you know, you could say is well, we're getting to talk about them. There there is a body of jurisprudence building up over some of these issues that you wouldn't get. Ordinarily, or as easily, with that threshold in place, I tend to think if you're asking the paying parties of all this, they say, "Well, I'm not so sure about the, this yeah. provision." <laughs> I think
1: that's. I think that's probably where 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 they would land on it. It seems like the the it's almost like the open door is there. So why not challenge it? And I think that, frankly speaking, for the parties here, the fact that they were entitled uh, entitled to and did appeal a number of these partial final awards was probably an expensive clause for them to include. It's it's maybe also worth flagging from a drafting point that you can do the opposite with a Section 69 appeal and you can actually say there's no entitlement to a Section 69 appeal. You, under English law, there are there are there are two different grounds to challenge an award on on jurisdiction or on some on some kind of serious uh, serious procedural irregularity. But then there's this third this third route, which is the appeal on a point of law. And the appeal on the point of law is one that you can actually contract out of. So you you kind of have a have a have a have a menu of options as a contracting party, whether to say we don't want any appeal of law whatsoever, or alternatively to say any any question of law from an arbitration award is appealable. Or alternatively, you take the the kind of middle ground, which is the position in the LMAA terms, which then brings you, well, brings you to the permission to appeal stage.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because it's not it's not universal as we've talked about before in in prior episodes. It's not universal that parties have rights to appeal arbitration awards. In the yeah, U- exactly. in the US, for example, you can challenge an award, but that's a, com- a different animal to appealing on a point of law and having that that as a right albeit with thresholds as you have in in England so you could in theory if you wanted to devise a arbitration agreement where it was seated in London subject to you know London arbitration law, the arbitration act of 1996 and have it subject to certain institutional rules for example, you could do all that and then you know contract out of the appeal uh, to make it more, you know, more like the US approach in that respect and just leave it to certain procedural irregularities or other types of challenges.
1: Yeah, so should as, we... As, as parties do under the LCIA terms. Quite. Round that off, that's the...
0: Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, there's... There's some interesting points on all that, on drafting arbitration agreements. It's often not considered, in my experience, as much as it might be. And this is a case where you could you could say to a client, well, look, this is an example of what can happen with these types of clauses. Do you, would you like the ability to do this, or is this a cautionary tale of what not to do? Um, so, okay, should we, should we get into some of the debate about these dry docking costs?
1: Yes, I think we should. Oh. And for me, this... The my interest in this case centers on one specific argument. There were a few that were run, but the one that I like the most is the one that goes to the to the new Flamenco case. I think that was their best argument, but I also like to see the new flamenco in action because that's only a few years old. It was quite. A, I remember tracking that case as it went through the from the High Court to the Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court because I was working on a file that was looking at damages and mitigation, and this case was just totally, totally on all fours with the with the arguments that we were trying to run, and the Court of Appeal went one way that really helped us, and the Supreme Court then reversed the Court of Appeal's decision. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly. Pretty disappointing.
0: Exactly, and th- this was all in this case. This was all about the question. It was the second que- question actually posed by uh, Sir Nigel Tia uh, that ought the arbitrator to have held that there was no sufficient causal nexus between the breach and the saving. Okay. There was a que- there was a question prior to that which the judge thought should be dealt with prior to the new finding go. But I- I'm more than happy to get into into this one. Um, first, given your interest, Callum. I, I think it might just be useful for, for our listeners if we identify the argument here and then get into the new flamenco. And what council for the owners was arguing here was that if there was a saving, and this is a saving about the dry docking costs, that that saving was not actually caused by the detention of the vessel, but by the way that the vessel was treated by the head owners and the owners. And, and, and I think that this is, this is really the, the, the critical point to understand is, yes, there was a, there may have been a, a saving on, on the dry docking, but what was the underlying cause of that? Was it because that the vessel was detained? And as the arbitrator said, it was virtually impossible for the dry docking to, to go ahead because the vessel was detained? Or did the kind of causal origin of this saving arise because the head owners and the owners declared a, a CTL and the owners submitted that was a question, that causation question was really a question of law or alternatively a mixed question of, of fact and law. And then the, the, the court got into the new flamenco. So... I think perhaps if you want to take it on the new flamenco and give a, a summary of that case that, that might be useful.
1: Yeah, and that's that's exactly the background. So so the new flamenco then steps in and the new flamenco was a case where there was a early re-delivery a couple of years early and Across that period, the market had dropped reasonably significantly. So the the owners of the of the vessel who were the innocent party, they'd had the vessel re-delivered early. They claimed for for the for their losses across the remainder of the charter party period on the basis of the difference between the market rate that they would have been paid and the lower sorry the higher rate they would have been paid and the lower market rate that they were in fact. Able to get for the vessel. Uh, sorry, what the, the, I've kind of given away the given away the punchline there in that, that that they in fact did not put the vessel into the market. Instead of putting the vessel into the into the available market, they sold it and they sold the vessel for twenty three odd million. And two years later, at the end of the charter party period, the vessel would have been worth seven million. So the owners then brought their claim and they said. The, our, our claim is based on the higher rate that we would have got from you, the lower market rate that we would have got if we traded the vessel. And they were relying on the old authorities like the Elena D'Amico that's, that basically say that your measure of loss in the charter party context is, a, is is based on the available market rate. And the charter said, no, what, what you've done is sold the vessel. And because you've sold the vessel when we redelivered to you, you managed to, in fact, make a windfall of around sixteen million because the value of the vessel dropped so dramatically over the two years that we would that, that we would have had we, that we otherwise would have had control of the vessel. And they said you had no, you, you would have had no opportunity to sell the vessel were it not for our early redelivery. And therefore, you need to factor into your claim the credit that we should be getting for giving the vessel back to you two two years early. And this. This kind of went through the courts and the and went through arbitration, went through the courts. The Court of Appeal said, yes, you selling the vessel was an effective mitigation strategy, and you have to give credit for the mitigation that you in fact do. And the Supreme Court then reversed that, much to my disappointment at the time, and said that you um, that in fact the reason that you sold the vessel was not so closely connected to the breach that we have to give credit for it. It's only where the where the where where the the kind of mitigation steps that are taken or the steps that are taken that that, that provide you some kind of benefit against your against your claim are causally connected to the to the breach in a very strong way that we can then use that to. to to chip away at the claim. And there they said effectively you've got the vessel early but you've still elected you've still made a commercial decision to sell the vessel rather than putting it into the available market and the breach hasn't compelled you in any way to sell the vessel you've 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 chosen to you know take the risk. And where I think the Supreme Court got that right is that it if, if the vessel had have actually gained money across that time, it wouldn't be open to the, to the disponent owners to say, actually, our claim is greater because we sold the vessel two years early. And had we, had, had, you know, had you completed the charge party, we would have sold at a higher amount because the court would then have said, well, no, your, your measure of loss is still based on the available market rate. So here they're saying, well, there's a the difference between something you commercially choose to do and something that you're almost kind of compelled to do by the breach so that then, yeah, and I think that, that decision then, then is interesting in the context of, of this claim, as you mentioned.
0: Yeah, because when you, when you look at it in the context of this claim, you've got a vessel under detention in Venezuela. It was evidence led by owners that had the vessel not been detained, it would have dry docked, I think, in, in June 2015. And because of the detention, there was a physical impossibility of the dry docking happening and that 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 does seem to be you talk about a strong connection it does seem to be a kind of strong connection there between the detention and the avoidance of that cost cost now yes it may well be that the vessel was then declared a ctl and there was some decision independent decisions made as to what's going to happen with the vessel but if you just look at it from in the absence of that other potential cause or independent decision, there does seem to be quite a strong connection between the detention and then the physical impossibility of this dry docking taking place.
1: Yeah. It seems to me, you know, reading, reading the facts as, as I presented in the judgment that, that that's entirely right. The, 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 the fact of the detention prevented the dry docking from happen, that seems clear. The dry docking then never happened at the end of the, you know, following the detention between between the detention ending and redelivery. Essentially, all that happened between those two points was the vessel was towed to Trinidad from Venezuela and then redelivered without dry docking. It it didn't seem to me that there was ever a additional, that there was any additional losses suffered as a result of not dry docking the vessel from the disponent owners, that's something that I. That goes to the point you made earlier about the fact that the the disponent owners here kept bringing this claim. They kept you know bringing this claim, bringing this claim. Same thing happened in the arbitration a number of times, and then they appeal it, and then they hear at the very end of it after a final award, they're they're appealing on this point again, and it it made me think. You know, surely surely there's a liability there that they're trying to avoid for this 1.4 million. They're they're, they're somehow facing this claim from the, from the head owners. But, but no, it doesn't seem like they were, they were ever kind of charged by head owners for that.
0: Yeah, it just, it just struck me reading this judgment that uh, I, I, I would be very hesitant to talk about as a kitchen-sick type approach, but, but almost any conceivable argument was thrown into the mix here. And at times there was kind of criticisms made of the arbitrator which I don't think the court took too favourably upon, to be honest. And there was this mixture of, well, are you criticising a question of fact or are you you criticising a question of law? They went on to criticise this, uh, whether the arbitrator understood a notice of abandonment. And the court found that, that, no, the arbitrator dealt with it and formed a clear view that dry docking would be pointless and that, that this was a, a finding of fact, which does not give rise to any point of law. But then kind of the, the argument developed into, you know, the arbitrator misunderstanding the legal effect of an unaccepted notice of abandonment. And, and the court kind of shot that down, I, I think, quite firmly in, in saying, well, no, this arbitrator, with with uh his her experience would not have misunderstood what a notice of abandonment was and that you know this this was a finding of fact and there was no error of law but it it just seemed to me that some of the points that kind of strayed into this and the way that they were handled was i uh, i i couldn't help but read that the owners felt compelled to make all of these arguments so that in another setting probably an arbitration up the chain they can say we made this point we made that point we took it all the way to the court on each occasion we got knocked down so our claim should stand in its entirety as against the hull underwriters or, or against head owners to begin with and then through to head hull underwriters
1: and this is think- another example of that I think there's every chance that that's that that's correct. The the other example that jumps to my mind is the is the the fact that the arbitrator was criticized for for not deducting the the full amount. In effect he, the, the arbitrator was criticized for giving credit to the dry docking amount in his partial awards. And the court the court said quite sensibly that in fact the arbitrator was obliged to do that because the an arbitrator in giving a a partial award and an interim partial award for a monetary amount can only give the minimum that the, the 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 breaching party is certainly obliged to pay it wouldn't be it wouldn't be open to the arbitrator to say we're going to give you the full amount including the including this dry docking expense and then we'll we'll flip it the other way if the dry docking expense turns out to be something which which can't be claimed
0: yeah, exactly. Um, and look, another, another example, and I must admit, I didn't spend too much time on this section of the decision, but it was on the res judicata type argument. And, and when I read that as a point that was being taken, and that was whether charterers were stopped by res judicata from alleging such a saving. And this kind of went to this point about that owners having... Participated in the arbitration, which was on an ongoing basis with a series of awards. Were then t- trying to turn around to say, "Well, some points can't be taken now," but yet they wanted to have two bites of the cherry themselves. And I just, mm-hmm. I just didn't see that at, at, at all. And I, I thought those types of arguments detracted from what, what, I th- I, with what I agree with you was really the, the the key type argument here on the on the new
1: flamenco. Yeah, I agree. I saw I saw this res judicata argument, and it it, it didn't it, it honestly didn't strike me as one to spend much time talking about in this on this podcast because it it just didn't feel like a res judicata situation. It felt like a situation where there are a number of partial final awards or partial interim awards.
0: Yeah, what did, what did you make of the last point? That, and I must admit, I did. Find this interesting. I, you know, unlike the rest Judicata point, perhaps, I did at least conceptually think, well, it, it gave me pause for thought. Well, if this is claimed as an indemnity rather than as a damages claim, can you still bring the saving into the calculations? And I thought I thought that was quite an interesting point. Owners suffered on that argument here because of the way that the claim was framed. And I don't think it was actually clearly framed as a claim for indemnity for what they owe to head owners. It was framed as a damages claim as against uh, charterers. Now, there may be some kind of argument around that, but that was one of the problems, I think, facing the owners. But even hypothetically, if, if it was if it, if it was framed as an indemnity claim how does the kind of scope of the indemnity work with a damages claim which is very clear that you would bring in credits in, in, into the calculations in a, in a damages context
1: yeah and the way the judge answered this was was actually on the specific facts of of the chart on the specific terms of the charge party, and the specific facts of the case and he said what you're indemnified what 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 the disponent owner has been indemnified against from charterers is the consequences of some some irregularities. The, the, the clause read that charters were to indemnify the owners against all consequences or liabilities that may arise from any irregularities in papers supplied by charters or their agents. And the judge really picked up on that word consequences and said, well, what's the consequence? The, the consequence has to be equal to the loss actually suffered, which in this instance is the same as the damages regime. And therefore, the indemnity is given effect to, even if we offset the dry docking costs from the from the total amount which is owed to the disponent owner. And I think that's right. And I think that's the correct way to look at what's meant by the word consequence. But I kind of agree with you. I, I I quite wanted to to see what the judge would have said in if if maybe the indemnity the indemnity wording was was broader about whether you do get to run the Anti New Flamenco argument in a in a, in a situation where there's an, where there's an indemnity rather than it being a a damages claim.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not so sure it would have ended in the same result. The, as you say, this really turned on the wording of the indemnity. And, and when we, when you're dealing with indemnities, particularly express indemnities, you're always looking at the starting off by looking at the actual clause and what is the indemnity being provided for. But putting that to one side, if it was a broader indemnity, then the, the question will be different. You'd be approaching this from the perspective of, well, what, what was the liability suffered up the chain? What what's what's the claim that head owners are bringing against owners? Uh, has, has liability been properly defended? Has the owners you know defended it in in, in a in a full way? And have they acted reasonably? Once that's crystallised, then if the indemnity clause covers th- that liability, then you know it's it's a straight pass through. I'm not sure that the the credit type argument would come into the analysis as much in that indemnity claim against the charterers it would be well was that a point to be taken in the in the arbitration up the chain i would have thought
1: i think that's a, that's got to be right if they if the, let's just say the the they were indemnified against any loss of hire then 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 presumably it's just the loss of hire the indemnity bites on the loss of hire it doesn't there's no there's no requirement to give credit for for something else that happened because they lost that hire, whereas here, when the indemnity was talking about consequences, then the judge could quite easily say, "Well, the consequence of of the detention was that there was no dry docking, and therefore, the consequences the 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 two positions are balanced." I think it is a very interesting question whether the same thing whether the same position would hold true if the indemnity was worded differently.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's just another example where these cases can throw up questions that sometimes are not even answered in the case, but they, just, they get you thinking. And I think it's such a, such a healthy, interesting process. I know I use that word all the time, but I, I think reading these cases and thinking, well... What if you what if the facts were a little different or what if it was argued this way or I've, I've got this case where this might be interesting like it, it's it's part of this process that I'm really enjoying Callum I've got to say should we should we just maybe wrap this up and give some final final comments on on the decision
1: yeah I think I I mean I'd agree with you this I think this process really does make you think in a makes you think in an interesting way and Keeps you engaged with the law and, you know, just maybe as a final comment, it's interesting, this, 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 just this decision alone, you know, you get to look into some, some recent damages, Supreme Court law, see how that's applied in a slightly different context that, that helps to expand the body of law that we have on, on these kind of causative credits, if you like. We've got these interesting procedural points around appeals, around drafting appeals. Um, We've got the, what I thought was an interesting procedural point around the, the quantum that you can claim in a partial final award which is the which is only only being the minimum um, that that you could run interim partial awards only being the minimum amount which is which is actually due to you and then we've got these points just on uh, on on the difference between an indemnity and a damages claim and that's even setting to one side the you know the interesting in isolation but not ultimately hugely determinative in this case points on on res judicata. so a, f- a fulsome award and an interesting one to to, to talk through.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and you're right to bring up the the nature of this arbitration as being a rolling arbitration because I, in my experience, they are not too common where you have a, an ongoing loss, particularly over years and years, as unfortunately panned out in this case, where you're you're asking for losses along the way to that are that are crystallising to then be subject to an award, but it's. It's good to see how that works in practice. And I know we do have cases where certain losses are not yet crystallized, but clients want to get on with the arbitration, get them moving. And you can see this is an example of how that can play out, where you might have certain losses that are crystallized, others that are still unknown or are unfolding, and you can get things underway. You get an interim final
1: award and keep the arbitration open pending further losses. Exactly, and I think that's probably going to be music to some clients' ears because no one wants to. I mean, look at the disponent owners here; they don't, they don't wouldn't have wanted to sit on this claim until they were twenty four point something million in the hole before try before starting the process of recovering it. I think it's a, I think it was the right thing to the, you know to do what they did and, and start the process moving and get some get some money in their bank account for the hire they're missing out on. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed.
0: Alright Callum. Well, it's a pleasure always is. Thank you for for listening in to all our listeners. And so we really appreciate your um, patronage and having you with us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this this episode. Thanks Callum.
1: Thank you and just just to add the uh, I think if if you if you've made it this far and you're enjoying the podcast the the best thing you can do to kind of support us and keep and keep these things going is just to just to hit subscribe and and listen to them with with regularity it really really does help so uh, please do and thank you
0: yeah and the last last thought for me is we've been getting some great uh comments back on certain things uh, so keep those coming if you're enjoying it let us know if you like you know certain things addressed or you, you think we could do things differently we are open to suggestions so yeah keep the conversation going good stuff Aura callum until next week Catch take care everyone right.
1: bye